Well, hey everyone, this is Cameron. Um, man, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, I opened the sermon just just sharing about the laundry list of compounding factors uh, that were making me and most of you feel incredibly anxious. And uh, this week, we we still feel the collective weight of all those things. Um, I'm guessing, uh, but now we have to make room for. Man, the sorrow of our beloved West Coast burning from, uh, from yeah, record wildfires. Um, forests and wildlife and homes and entire communities and, and lives have already been lost. And um, uh, it's devastating. Uh, we, don't, we don't know uh, to what extent it's going to come into um, Portland proper. Uh, whether it does or doesn't, it's, it's an epic tragedy. Um, and we should all pray and be praying uh, over time uh, for the mercy of God um, on our, our land, our literal land, our neighbors, and, and on ourselves, that he would uh, stop the fires, um, stop the destruction. Um, and the images we're seeing on the news, and, and even right now, as I don't know if it looks this way on the camera, but the, the orange glow um, is uh, from the light passing through the smoke-stained air, kind of beats through this window. Um, these images are, are legitimately horrifying. Um, and, and amidst that, I've been reminded of the words of, let's say, Paul in Romans 8. He says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Uh, I also thought of the words of Jesus in John 16. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And every time another disaster gets heaped onto the pile for us, we really do um, do well to remember these verses. Let, let it not be evidence against your trust in God, but further evidence that what he has revealed is true. Creation itself does long for the world to be put right, just as we do. And God promises to do it once and for all. And for now, um, our grief is appropriate. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, our mourning is appropriate. Um, our stress is appropriate. But let's pray that God would give us the ability to carry even more than that, the hope that God actually is with us. Um, to carry even more than that, that the resolve to be the hands and feet of God, the hands and feet of Christ, um, to serve those in need uh, selflessly when the time comes, and, and to, to carry even more trust in God's loving concern for us and desire to comfort us now um, and to comfort us once and for all when he brings his kingdom in full and puts all things right. Um, so all that said, um, <laughs> we've now come to the very end of, uh, the book of first John. So we, we, we've got the final verses, which makes this the final sermon of first John. Um, and I 
once again would consider it a real grace that it it just so happens to be that this passage this week of all weeks um, is one full of hope-filled assurance. Um, so let's just let's just jump straight in and, uh, and and see what John has for us here. Well, we've got kind of two sections, verses 13 through 20, and then the final verse, verse 21, is the second section. Um, verses 13 through 20 um, really are focused on offering assurance or confidence to the community that John's been writing to, um, who are faithful to John's teaching. He wants to give them solid ground to stand on and to be confident in their relationship with the Lord. And the first one comes in verse 13, the first little confidence booster. And it's, it also gives us his purpose in even writing this letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John begins the end of the letter by giving us his clearest indication yet of why he even sat down to write this thing, that the group of sincere believers he's been writing to might know confidently that they have eternal life. And of course, he's been warning them repeatedly about false teachers and the actions that identify those false teachers. But at heart, this reveals that this letter has been intended to build the confidence of this community and hopefully to us as well, Uh, so many years removed in Portland, Oregon. I think it's meant to be a confidence builder for us too. At the most fundamental level, um, the key to eternal life with Jesus in the family of God is belief in the name of Jesus, or in the name just means it's in the person of Jesus. And John identifies that here. Um, Do you believe in him? Have you bent the knee to King Jesus? And if so, even though our world is on fire, uh, both figuratively and literally right now, um, John wants you to know that you are secure in the Lord if you trust him, if you have believed in the name. That's confidence number one. Confidence number two has to do with prayer. And it's really covered in verses 14 through 17. Um. It's first confidence about when we pray in his will. We see that in verses 14 through 15. He says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So, So before he concludes, John also wants his followers to know the incredible privilege they have in getting to approach God in prayer. And it made me think, what, like, what's the most starstruck you've ever been? Um, I can think of multiple examples. The one that really came to mind for me was uh, uh, how absolutely terrified I was when I came face to face with my all-time favorite songwriter, a guy by the name of Jeff Tweedy, uh, songwriter for the band Wilco. I think it was my sophomore year of college, we went to a Wilco show in, in Arkansas where I was going to school. And uh, we ended up hanging out late after the show and kind of went back by the tour bus and all that. And the band ended up coming out and kind of doing a meet and greet with the fans. I just remember the petrified sort of shock and awe that came over me as I saw Jeff, the man who I felt like I knew from the intimacy of his vulnerable lyrics, um, just standing there and signing autographs. And I had a copy of the Wilco book. I took over to him and I have this picture. It's, I think it, 
I don't know where it is right now, but I got a picture taken with me and Jeff. I've got my arm around him. He's got his arm around me. And I am just like beaming goofy. And Jeff is just flat. Uh, I'm not sure. He, he clearly didn't feel the degree of starstruckness that, that I did in that moment. It was a little bit lopsided. Um, the same feeling I remember coming over me when I was in fifth grade. Uh, at the airport with my parents, and I came across WC, WCW wrestler Diamond Dallas Page. Nearly the same height uh, of emotion there. Uh, but, but, but my point is this. Um, when you're in the presence of, of someone that you truly believe to be great and, and who has inspired you and who you think is uh, just substantial and awesome, um, it does something to you. We, we recognize uh, the importance of that moment and, and the privilege and the honor that it is uh, to get to be with that person, whether it's a serious person or a silly person. The emotion's real. Um, and John wants us to feel um, not petrified, but confident. Um, confident, not, not flippant, and I think there's a difference there. Confident, not flippant, but confident in Christ to approach the Creator God of the universe in prayer, in conversation, uh, to, to, to take our needs and our desires and our wants to him, um, both, both to approach him at all and, and to know that he is eager to grant us what we ask for when we ask according to his will. That the idea of prayer for Christians is so old hat and like, yeah, of course Christians pray, but but the idea that the God of the universe avails himself to you and to me to listen and to answer is profound. May it not become old hat for us. Um, it's And notice here, it's not, it, the text doesn't say that he will give us absolutely everything we ask for, as some, especially like in the prosperity gospel movement, try to argue um, there are plenty of ill-advised prayers that God would not be good to answer. And if you think about that for any amount of time, you'll, you'll see that that's the case. He can't be good and answer every prayer. Um, so it's not absolutely anything will be granted, but he wants us to know that we can be confident that the more and more our wills and desires are conformed to Christ's, uh, the more and more we can expect our prayers to be answered as our will syncs up with God's will. Um, it's an almost unthinkable privilege that John's talking about here. So that's the first part of this prayer thing. The second is, it has to do with when we pray for our brothers and sisters in the church. This is verses 16 through 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, there's a lot going on here. But, but, but the main thrust here is that John wants us to have confidence that when we see a brother or sister in Christ fall into sin, that when we pray for them, he will restore them. I think that the God will give them life means that he will be gracious to restore the fellowship with them that brings eternal life. I think it's another angle on what he already said in chapter one, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your prayers on behalf of, of a brother and, or sister are instrumental and powerful 
in the process of them repenting and experiencing again fellowship, relational fellowship with God. Um, John doesn't offer us a formula or a timetable on what to expect, like when this is going to be effective or whatever, but he wants us to have a deep confidence that our prayers for our brothers and sisters are effective. Um, but you've probably noticed there's some super confusing flip side to this idea in this in these verses. John introduces this idea of a sin leading to death, or, or more literally, sin unto death. Um, exactly what John means here is, once again, um, we had one of these last week. Uh, we have another one. It's one of the most uh, challenging questions in the New Testament to sort out what's going on here. Um, and it's, it's challenging not just because John's language is opaque or hard to get our heads around, but because whatever he means, this is really serious, right? I mean, don't pray for this sin. It's the sin that leads to death. What is he talking about? It matters. So we need to struggle to find out what, it, what he means. We could easily spend hours uh, diving into the various ways this passage is understood by different scholars, um, but I, I don't think that's the best use of our time right now. Um, so I, I want to try to quickly address it as best as possible uh, by first laying out exactly what we observe in the text and then making my suggestion for how we should understand this. So this is always helpful just to make a list of what do we see that kind of guides whatever this is going to mean. What where, where are the boundaries that we see in the text? So here's a few observations on the language John uses. First, there's two types of sin here, a sin not unto death and a sin unto death. Number two, John makes it clear that brothers or believers in Christ can commit sin not unto death, and they need restoration from God. And he expects that this will happen, both that believers will sin in this way and that the restoration will happen. Number three, John actively encourages believers to pray for other believers who sin in this way, this way that's not unto death. Number four, John does not specify who can commit the more serious sin unto death. He says believers can commit the sin not unto death, but he doesn't put an identity on the one who's committing the sin unto death. So it's possible that believers cannot commit this sin. It's possible that they can commit it. Uh, either way, it could go, judging strictly by the language here. And then finally, John does not actively encourage believers to pray for those who sin unto death although he doesn't forbid it either. It doesn't say, I forbid you to pray for that. He says, I basically, I don't encourage it. I'm not saying to pray for them. Okay, so that's kind of the, the framework. Whatever is the right answer is, is going to have to make all those things work. And so I'll make my suggestion for how we should interpret these, these two sins. Um, remember, throughout this letter, John has been constantly using comparison and contrast language between the genuine brothers or followers of Jesus and those who are in God's love, in God's light, in God's family, and the false teachers who have rejected the genuine Jesus and are, he says, aligned with the world, the spirit of the Antichrist, the devil. So, so it would make a lot of sense if John is using this contrast one more time, trying to create a sharp distinction between these two camps of people. Um, it's likely then that the sin unto death for John is the very sin that makes the false teachers non-believers. The rejection of the genuine son of God. The refusal to believe or to recognize him for who he actually is. Um, to, to commit this sin, to, to refuse to follow the true Jesus, to see him for who he is, is to cut yourself off 
from, from what John has repeatedly called the very source of life, Jesus himself. To commit the sin is to cut yourself off from the very mechanism by which forgiveness and life over sin and death is found. It's probably not the exact same idea, but it could be closely related um, to, to what we briefly discussed last week, which is the unpardonable sin of the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, um, which, which we, we took the view that that's, that's calling Jesus' kingdom-bringing, spirit-enabled work the work of Satan, looking the good work of God in the eye and saying, that must be Satan's work. Um, it's similar to that. It, it, it's a decisive rejection of, of who God is. So I think that's what he has in mind here, that, that the sins unto death uh, can cannot be committed by a believer who's in Christ, but it's the sin unto death is, is the rejection of the very means of the ability to be forgiven. That is Jesus. Um, and remember, John doesn't forbid us from praying for this sin. I, I think the point is he wants us to know very clearly that how we respond to this kind of thing is very much unlike seeing a believer sin and praying for them to find repentance and relational restoration with God. He, it's a different matter. It's not just a matter of having some some little sin forgiven and Okay, we're fellowships restored. It's it's something much deeper and, and much more serious. So that's my take. Um, gleaned from uh, a lot of great scholars, way smarter than me. Um, if you want to take a deeper dive into this, feel free to email me. I'd recommend some good resources for you to read. Um, could link some articles and stuff, but um, there you go. Okay. It's a long sidebar, but John has three more encouragements for us, which we'll fly through quickly uh, because they're, they're, they're each repetitions of things that we've discussed pretty recently in the letter. And then we'll, we'll kind of close on the last verse. So the third, the third uh, encouragement or, or confidence builder is confidence from our fruit. Verse 18a, he says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. Um, in effect, he's saying that, that the love for God played out in obedience and love for neighbor that he sees in them should give them confidence that they've been born of God. This, this is him saying, look, I see the fruit in you of a sincere relationship with the Lord. Um, the fourth is, that, is the confidence that we are protected from the evil one, verses 18b through 19. He says, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He wants them to know that Jesus is actively at work to protect them. Even though the whole world is in Satan's grasp, they're like this spiritually untouchable outpost in the midst of a hostile world. That's how he wants to view kept safe by the loving presence of Jesus himself. And then finally, um, confidence that the Son has given them understanding. He says, verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So he wants them to know that Jesus himself is the source of their understanding and that their understanding comes from a relationship with him. It's not in an abstract, it's, it's not abstract information to accumulate, but it's found in a person 
to know. Um, the Son has given us the understanding and that uh, we may know him, he says. It's all this relational language. It's not a fact out there. It's a relationship in here. And he wants them to be confident in the relationship they have with him and, and the understanding that that brings. All right, and now we'll conclude our sermon series uh, the same way that John concludes his, uh, his, his sermon of the letter uh, with a warm but pointed statement. Verse 21, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And there's no flowery final greeting here. Um, he doesn't start addressing people or, or whatever. He just ends it right there. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He leaves his readers with just six words, a final plea in light of all that he said. And I don't know, when you read this, I don't know if at first blush it seems like super out of left field to you. It, it often has to me. Um, he hasn't used the word idol at all up to this point, so it's kind of strange that he's introducing it now. But regardless, I do think this flows very directly from multiple points he's been making throughout the letter. But what is an idol? It's important to define that for us. I like Tim Keller's definition from his excellent short book, Counterfeit Gods. Keller says, It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And I think that's an appropriately broad definition um, that, that captures that a genuine idol can be everything from a literal wooden statue representing a false god that you bow down in worship to, um, as plenty have been in the habit of doing throughout human history and today, all the way to something more subtle like uh, money or sex or power or family or work or art or politics or anything that takes up the meaning-making, joy-giving, identity-forming place in your life that only God himself should sit in. Um, and, and, and throughout the letter, we've picked up a variety of clues that, that though John ha, uh, has written to encourage his followers, they're genuine disciples, genuine receivers of eternal life, genuine members of the family of God. Um, his need to encourage them was prompted by this other group of people who were cutting at, like undercutting their trust that they actually knew Jesus because they were claiming a special, better relationship with God and were trying to draw people from the genuine faith to whatever this new thing was. Remember, John called those people deceivers, antichrists, false prophets, children of the devil, those in close association with the world. And we've inferred that their understanding of Jesus allowed them to comfortably, to comfortably claim to be sinless and to refuse to repent of their actual sin. Um, it, 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 uh, their understanding of Jesus allowed them to reject the commands of God, especially the call to love one's brother or sister. It allowed them to, to give no second thought to being lovers of the world in that negative sense um, and conformist to its values rather than to the values of Jesus' kingdom. And it even allowed them to deny that Jesus was the Messiah who had genuinely come in the flesh. They said they followed Jesus, but they could comfortably hold all these things right next to it. Evidently, they, they considered themselves followers of Jesus, but do you see the problem? It was a Jesus of their own making. 
it, it wasn't the Jesus who'd been revealed to them from God in history as he actually is, regardless of how we want him to be. It, it wasn't the Jesus that John and the other apostles lived intimately alongside and knew, really knew. <laughs> it wasn't the Jesus that the global church across time and geography and culture has worshipped and recognized as true. It was an idol. It was a Jesus-shaped idol. And every, I mean, this is so important to remember, every person and every people will find themselves tempted at times to bend Jesus, to chip away at what we perceive to be the rough edges of Jesus, uh, to redefine Jesus, to fit our personal sensibilities. And the way that you and I will be tempted to do this is not going to be the same way that a group of first century uh, men and women um, would have. It'll be the way that a group of 21st century (laughs) men and women will be tempted. But we will be tempted to do it nonetheless. And, And the final challenge from John here after this beautiful passage of encouragement and reaffirmation is this. Do not settle for an idol. Do not settle for a mirage. Do not settle for a Jesus that can't save you and that isn't genuine good news for the world. He says, believe in my testimony. The testimony of John, who is one of the 12 disciples, one of the three disciples that formed Jesus' closest inner core. The beloved disciple is how he refers to himself. The one who leaned his head on Jesus' chest in the upper room. The one that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to. The eyewitnesses that saw Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension from as intimate of a perspective as anyone possibly could have. And who didn't discover a secretly, we talked about this the very first week, they didn't discover in all their intimacy and closeness with them in time spent, a flawed, secretly pretentious, deceiving, manipulative, less than meets the eye, man behind the curtain, like we so often do with religious leaders. You get close enough, you are disappointed almost every time. But they came to see this Jesus, John and the other apostles, in fact, as the Son of God, God himself, the Lamb of God, who was slain to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, that any who would believe in him might have eternal life. John really believed that. And he pleads with you and with me and with his readers to look nowhere else and to no one else for life. It can't be found anywhere else. John knew this. He wants us to know it. And and he says over and over again, if you want to know, if you're following the real Jesus, which has been a sub-theme of this letter, if you want to know if you're in his family, if you're walking with him in genuine love and in the genuine light, he says, "Look look at the love you have for your brothers and sisters. He says, look at your obedience, to what he's commanded. And above all else, the fundamental, the bedrock thing, the unshakable one is to look at Jesus Christ, the real and sincere son of God come in the flesh 
and believe. Everything hinges on that. So keep yourselves from idols and come to the real Jesus who came to seek and save the lost, whose heart for you is good and loving and true, who wants the best for you, who at your lowest moment died for you. So Door of Hope Northeast, uh, that's the end of our time in 1 John. I, I hope and trust that it's been helpful. Um, I encourage you to go back and read back through it, hopefully maybe with a little more insight on a fresh read through. Um, and may we, may we be the kind of people, may our prayer be this week that we're the kind of people um, in a world, again, that feels so chaotic, that is so chaotic, that we might be people who are hemmed closely to Jesus, that we look like him that we see opportunity to serve like him, that we, that we proclaim the kingdom like him and the way to salvation that is him, that the, the words of encouragement that John sought to write to this community uh, would be true of us, that the same things he saw in them he would see in us as he was writing, if he was writing to us today. Uh, that's our prayer. May that be our prayer. Um, I hope you're well. Uh, I look forward to what's next for us. We'll be in touch, obviously. But in the meantime, I hope you're able to lean in closely to your brothers and sisters at Dwarf Hope Northeast and lean in closely to Jesus. Amen? Amen.